Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. It went viral. It was everywhere. I don't even remember being like there was a Muslim doing stand-up close to me if they weren't even Arab. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? If not me, who? Why can't I do it? This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Me as a little girl, I, I always, I had confidence for some reason of like, I could do anything. My dad, when I was very young, used to take me with him to a lot of his school functions. He was the dean of the business school and would put me in a huge room at a university function of like some fundraiser and just leave me in the room to wander and talk to strangers. I was like a 14, 15, 16 year old going to like a business function. I had no business being there. I learned how to network. I learned how to work a room. I learned how to talk to strangers. And that just gave me an extraordinary amount of confidence. And I always said to myself, if not me, who? Like, oh, why can't I do it? Our guest on El Empire this week is Maha Abul Aynain, the CEO and founder of the strategic communications brand Digital and Savvy that operates between the US and Dubai. There's probably a hundred ways and a hundred titles to describe Maha. And that's because she's done so much in her life in all these ways that mix really deliberate career decisions with also just being open to the opportunities that present themselves. From a record-breaking telecom deal to one of the largest IPOs in Egypt's history, to advising prime ministers on public affairs, to managing the personal brands of celebrity clients, Maha's career is a testament to what happens when you believe in yourself when you believe in your abilities, and ask, why not me? In this conversation, Maha is refreshingly honest about how she got to be what I would consider the superstar that she is today. There were big names and big clients along the way. Netflix, Google, Coca-Cola, Gary Vee, General Mills. Some were employers, some were clients, but all of them came with a lot of learning. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dana Balutz, and you're listening to El Empire. I want to start, though, Maha, at the very beginning um, and talk a little bit about your background. You are from an Egyptian family, 
but grew up mostly in a small town in Minnesota. Is that right? Yeah. So I am born and raised in Mankato, Minnesota, which is a very small town. It was the home of Laura Ingalls Wilder on Little House on the Prairie. You can't get more middle America than that. Um, but I'm 100% Egyptian, Masreya, 100%. Both my mom and dad, uh, they passed away, but they're both Egyptian. I spent the early part of my life in the U.S. and then the second half of my life uh, overseas in Egypt and in Dubai. What was it like growing up having, being fully Egyptian, having Egyptian parents in a small town in America? Like I was the poster child for cultural diversity. There weren't any African-American kids, Asian kids in my school. I had dark skin, dark hair. Uh, my name is Maha Abulainain. It's a very hard 11 letters, you know, uh, name that I have. The internet didn't really exist when I was growing up. So there, people didn't know what Egypt was besides camels and the desert. And, you know, they didn't know what Islam was. They didn't know what Ramadan was. Obviously when time changed and things became more open, and the internet had a free access of information. People knew a lot about my culture and where I came from. I had a great childhood. My parents did a very good job of within the four walls of our house. It was Egypt, like the food, the rules, the religion, the traditions, the music. But once we opened that door, you were in America. And so American you know, baseball, you know, soccer games. My parents really did a good job of making us aware of our culture and where we came from. And I, I, I got the best of both worlds. In every family, people are always like, oh, Maha was this when she was young, or there's always like that, your own reputation. And what what was it like when, as a child? I, I was the spunky one. I was the outgoing one. I was the attention seeker, outgoing, uh, extroverted child, for sure. I was always the one doing shenanigans on family vacations. <laughs> I was the, always the uh, practicing my live stand-up at the pyramids as a reporter. I was always an ambitious performer and outgoing. My sister was very conservative and, you know, she was the good student and I was the more got into trouble, gave my parents all their gray hair type of child. <laughs> and then eventually you moved to Egypt. And what was that like? I had lived in the U.S. my whole life. I was born and raised in the U.S. I went to school. I had friends. I had a job. It was where I knew. And every summer, my parents would take us to Egypt. On Christmas vacations, we would go to Egypt. So I did have a lot of experience in going to Egypt, but it's different to go someplace on vacation versus actually living there. And so when I moved to Egypt in 97, I was 27 years old. I was a professional. I wasn't in high school or college where I had like a shilla or a group of friends that I would hang out with. And for me, I didn't, my Arabic was okay, but I didn't, I wasn't fluent in Arabic. I didn't, you know, really know much about how to navigate living in a country versus going on vacation. It was a transition. I'm not going to lie. It wasn't that easy, but I really relied on the values of how I grew up of like, you know, lean in, get to know people, listen, be part of the culture, ask a lot of questions, uh, build relationships and, and, and grow from there. And that's pretty much what I did. You know, one of the things that a lot of people always wonder is like, how did you get that first gig? the one that really kind of changed the course or at least shifted the course of your career. And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, that first job um, that really meant something to you. 
I moved to Egypt in 1997. I, like I said, I didn't have a job. I, I got to Egypt and it's at that point, you either worked for a multinational, like a Unilever, a P&G, a Coca-Cola, or you worked for a family business. I never worked for a family business before or a family conglomerate of companies. And I ended up, you know, meeting with the family business, the Sawiris family. And I got a job working for Nagib Sawiris. He offered me a job. Um, at the time, he was um, had a technology company where he had licenses for HP and Cisco to sell and distribute um, routers and printers. He ended up launching every mobile network, almost every mobile network in the Middle East and North Africa, which was like when cell phones were introduced, pretty much. I was at the front seat. Um, he offered me to be his office manager and I had like thought that that was a role that I was overqualified for. Um, I was, I went home that night to my dad and I'm like, dad, he offered me to be his office manager. Like I'm like, was an executive working at General Mills. I have my master's degree. I really thought that the role was too junior or beneath me at the time. And I, my dad was like, listen, you just moved here. You don't know anybody when you get to work for someone and be close to the sun, to the chairman of a company, you will learn so much. He's like, you go back tomorrow and you accept that job. And I don't really care how much they offer you. You're going to take it. Much to my chagrin, I went back the next day. I took, I took the job and it was the best thing that happened to me. I ended up launching almost all of his mobile networks. I was one of three people that went on the roadshow with Nagib globally to sell it into institutional investors. Like never in my life would I have gotten that experience had I not decided to take the job to be his office manager. That is wild. And it's such a lesson, I think, also in humility. Yeah, 100%. I wonder, Maha, how much of your experience working at a corporate like General Mills and also just growing up in the States, how much of that was brought into your work, um, working you know, in Egypt and really excelling at your role? I mean, it's a big part of the work ethic, right? I can't deny the American culture for business and work ethic. It really was ingrained in me from the very beginning. When I moved to Egypt, I realized how different business is in the Middle East versus the US. So US is all about results, get down to business, deliverables, time is money. That's what they teach you. Like you just have to be really efficient and productive and get to the bottom line. In the Middle East, when I moved there, I learned it's actually, it's those things, but second. First comes the human, build the relationship, all businesses personal, ask about their kids, have tea, take time, slow down. And then I started to figure out, hey, if I can make my superpower, how to bridge the gap between what people in the U.S. want to learn about the Middle East and how people in the Middle East want to learn about the U.S. And maybe that can be my secret sauce in my DNA and help build those bridges because I had to build those bridges. And I really value the upbringing I had in the U.S. because it gave me good business acumen. But then I'm all about the personal business and, and really building relationships for the long term. When you talk about like ethics in business or business acumen or being personal, what does that mean on a on a day to day? I mean, I failed a lot. Like, I'll be honest with you, I had to learn by failing. Like I joined the American Chamber of Commerce when I went to Egypt because I really wanted to be a part of the business network. And being part of the AmCham, there was only two women like in the group. And so all the day to day stuff was like, OK, when we go to a meeting room, 
you know, I want to sit at the table. I don't want to sit on the back chairs. And then having the men in the meeting go, why is she sitting on the main table? That's where like the men sit. And then having the women think, oh, who does she think she is sitting at the yeah. table? And so I think that kind of stuff I had to like work on, like, and then I would encourage other women to come sit next to me. And so that was like a big day-to-day thing that I had to face is like how to make sure that you were blending and fitting in, but also not shying away from like sharing your voice, sharing your opinions, sharing your ideas. So just finding that delicate balance of not being too much, but just also like really observing how the culture and the norms operate and respecting them. It sounds like you always had this, um, I guess, value system of lifting others around you as well. And obviously, as a woman working in the Middle East, especially on such a high level, I'm sure that was challenging in and of itself, but to also make the effort to bring other people up along with you. In my role, I really love to help um, inspire women, empower women. My company today is all women. It wasn't by design. It just happened that they were the most qualified people. In fact, now we're trying to actively recruit some men into the team. But we really, really believe, like even back when I was in my early days in Egypt, that, you know, women have a voice. They want to use it. Now they have the platforms to do it. Um, And it hasn't been an easy road for them. They have to be mothers. They have to balance family. They have to take care of their parents. Like a big part of the culture and even my upbringing was taking care of both of my parents. And it's something that in the Middle East, we, we value and we care a lot about. And so we just we do it all. And I think that's no different than any other women in any other markets around the world. You have to find the balance that's right for you. And hopefully I'll inspire and empower women to do the same. Can you talk about the decision to start, you know, your own company? I think it was called Organizational Consultants. You know, talk about the inception of the idea all the way to actually saying, okay, I, I have started this company. Self-awareness is a really important thing. Understanding what you can and can't do, understanding what you're good at and you're not good at. I realized I am not good at working at companies. I was working at General Mills and I did okay there. I was very successful in my roles, but I didn't, it wasn't me. And I worked at Google. I was an employee at Google for four years uh, as the head of comms and public policy. Like, I'm not a corporate girl. What I really want to do is go back to doing communications. That's the love of my life. That's what I love to do. That's my happy place. And I started my company in 2004 called Organizational Consultants, which is the company I still have today. And the reason I started the company was I just wanted to control what I did every day. I wanted to choose the projects I could work on. I wanted to see where I could give the most value for people. I had worked for Coca-Cola for almost 10 years as a client, and I'm thinking, a lot of people can serve Coca-Cola. What am I actually uniquely qualified to help companies do, and how can I go do that? Organizational Consultants is a name of a company that my dad had in the U.S. He was consulting for family businesses, and my father passed away. And months after he passed away is when I started the company, and I kept the name because it meant 
something to me. So much of what I've learned and so much of who I am is because of my dad. And so that was sort of my ode and my nod to him. Like, I'm going to keep this company, even though it's a kind of a very corporate name. And um, eventually, like a couple of years ago, we shifted and we came up with the consumer brand name of Digital and Savvy. But um, anybody can do press releases or organize press conferences. There's a lot of qualified people in the market that can do that. But I felt, what can I create for other people that's valuable? And that's my understanding of both markets. And how can I make a business helping businesses communicate really well and understand how to win? Mahai, I wonder if you're comfortable also talking about like the finances of it. Like, did you have savings ahead of starting your company? <laughs> Nothing. So I started my company in the conference room of one of my friend's companies. I was like, hi, them. Hi, them. I want to start a business, but I can't afford an office space. I just need someplace to come and work. And I'm going to bring this other woman on my team. Her name was also Maha. I'm like, it's just two people with our laptops. We're just going to sit in the conference room. Whenever you get a client and you need the meeting room, we'll just go downstairs to like a coffee shop or something. We just need to, we, we bootstrapped it. Then we got a second person. Then we got a third person. He's like, Hey, it seems like you're like a lot of people in my meeting room. Um, I think you need to get your own space. He really helped me a lot in the beginning of my journey and, and said, okay, I'll take you in. And, 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 and he's a great guy. And I ended up building my business from there. I had this fear when I, I sat in my office and I, and I looked outside my office and I had like a bunch of employees. I'm like, you know, I'm the boss. Like they expect me to walk in here and I, like, they're going to ask me questions. I need, I need to know the answers. <laughs> what if they like expect me to have knowledge and expertise and I don't know. And then, you know what you do know. And somehow when they would come into my office and ask me a question, I knew the answer. And then I got confidence. I'm like, Hey, I kind of know what I'm, I kind of know what I'm doing here. <laughs> Did you already have like a network and clientele that wanted to work with you? Like, how did you just start even making your, you know, making money? Yeah, it's hard. And once you land that first client, then you actually have to start delivering. And then it's like, oh, I need help. I need to hire somebody. And then the whole process of being an entrepreneur, that cycle of the chicken or the egg, like, do we hire the people and then get the business? Or do we get the business and then hire the people? So like, how do you scale your business? Those growing pains of like, I'm the accountant, I'm the HR, I'm the office manager, I'm the lawyer, I'm looking over the agreements. I'm, uh, I'm every role until I can really scale my company. And it's a pain point that every business faces. That's kind of how I started organically, word of mouth, telling people it's on the market, knocking on a lot of doors, doing a lot of presentations. And I tried to go slow because I was afraid to take on too much too fast and not be able to deliver. And your reputation is how you deliver the results, right? So do one, get some reps, get some learning, do a second, get some reps, get some learning. And then it just grew from there. And um, I started my company in Egypt. I was in Egypt for seven, eight years before I expanded into Dubai. And, and now I'm in the U.S. At the moment, you have massive clients like I'm obsessed with Gary Vee, love him, obviously Karen Wazin. These are huge global names. How do you even like get to that level? Like, how do you even meet someone like Gary Vee? You know, th those kinds of 
Yeah, if you can talk about the progression. I started in the news business and then I ended up in the comms business, which is like the flip side. Instead of me reporting, I now I, I pitch to reporters and I, I tell other people's stories. And I worked in government. I worked in corporate. I do a lot of work now with personal brands and people. And I really believe if you're a startup, if you're an entrepreneur, invest in building your personal brand because people want to know about your story, your journey, how you built that. That's why people love learning about and fascinated with Steve Jobs or Richard Branson. Like people want to know about the people that are building these incredible companies and products that we we love. And I also did a lot of public affairs. So I went and worked for the prime minister of Egypt and I, I, I served a couple of different governments because I felt governments like companies should know how to communicate. And when I went to the Egyptian government, I was like, you should um, have spokespeople. And they're like, what? We're like, every ministry should have a spokesperson and you should be putting out communications about the projects you're doing, the policies you're implementing, start to communicate with the public. I thought I was pushing boundaries with them, but they were so open to doing all of it. And um, that's something that I instituted all more than 20 some years ago. Yeah. It must have taken also like a ton of confidence, I'll say, to like go to. I had no fear. (laughs) Where did this no fear come from? I just do because I had this American thing in me. So like, I was just going to come up with these <laughs> ideas. And if they don't take them, what, the worst they were going to say was, no, we don't want to do that. Um, I ended up writing speeches for the prime minister and I hadn't met him before. And so they said, well, he wants you to write the speech he's giving for Davos for the World Economic Forum. And I'm like, I, I've i never met the prime minister, so I don't know how to write for somebody I've never met. Like, what's his tone? What's his tenor? Mm. What's his language? And I really just said to myself, what would I want to hear if I was sitting in the audience? And then it just flowed. It was a privilege for me. And it was like really fun actually to learn how government works and how they do speeches and how they put out policies. And so it was a good experience for me. So anyways, I did that for several years until I finally said, actually, the woman who's running my business is on maternity leave and I need to go because she's having a baby and I need to go back to my companies. I want to talk a little bit about this uh, idea of someone, of someone's brand and then also their reputation, which you work on a lot. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit about, you know, the age that we're in and like reputation feels so fragile in so many ways. And I'd love if you can give some advice for people, one, on how to build their brand, but also how to protect it and how to protect their reputation in such a digital, wild, cancel-y culture age. I love that. I love how you said reputation is fragile because it is. And if I always think of reputation in terms of currency. What's its value? What's its worth? How do you spend it? How do you use it? We do live in an age of cancel culture. We also live in real time. A lot of people have social media accounts and and think that they're not personal brands. They are like it's your reputation, how you look online. Uh, employers now Google their employees before they hire them. They check their LinkedIn. They check their social media posts. They're looking to see about their behavior, about their reputation. And it matters. You know, my dad uh, did a really good job of teaching me about reputation long before people thought about reputation management. Like you could have the best marketing in the world, the best sales team in the world, the best product in the world. But if you don't have a good reputation, you don't have anything to stand on. And I think a person only has their name. And how do you honor your name? Like, how are you 
with empathy? How are you with kindness? How are you intuitive to how people think? I, I love that you say kindness and I think and empathy and use these kinds of words that I honestly don't hear much in the business sense. Can you talk a little bit about kindness and empathy and the importance of that in your own personal brand and also how you bring those values to your own clients? I would say when I watch Gary Vee, I love that he's always, uh, you know, making sure to talk about kindness and stuff like that. Is that something that you also bring to your clients? Yeah. I mean, he rubs off on us a lot because we spend so much time with him and he's one of the few business leaders that talks so much about these, these traits. Like when did we ever talk about that kind of stuff at work? It was always emotions don't belong in the workplace. Well, you know what? We're humans. <laughs> emotions are where we are and that's they, that they do belong. Like if people don't use their emotions and how are they going to be passionate about something? Right. So you need to think about how, how you can use your emotions to play to your strengths and to actually build bridges with other people. So we can't just take people's money and assume that things will go the right way. We have to actually deliver. We have to have empathy for the fact that they are competing. You know, they have a competitive marketplace as well. They have to make hard decisions on where they spend their budgets and time. Kindness in the workplace is, is super, super important. I care more about how my team members treat each other first than they treat the clients or their partners or their vendors. You know, understanding the importance of emotional intelligence at work is, is what makes leaders and companies stand out. Speaking of reputation, Maha, you've been described as a boss lady, as a badass woman, as a wonder woman. How do you feel about these terms? Yeah, I mean, it's not that, but it's just like, I feel like, you know, the world girl boss or powerhouse, it's like, you know what, I'm just trying to make it out here. Several years ago, I sat down with myself to talk about like, what, what, is, what am I doing? Like, what's my legacy? What am I here on this planet to do? And what's my mission? Like, what, what am I going to say to my niece and nephew that Auntie Maha is really good at this? And this is what Auntie Maha did because that's my compass is those kids. They're not kids anymore. They're young adults. Um, and it was to help people communicate better. Those four words... It took me a long time in my career, 30 some years, to understand that I was about those four words, help people communicate better. And today, I, I know that you're writing a book about um, your career and your life. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about making that decision to, to write the book? Why did you want to do that? I've wanted to write a book for like 10 years. And then I, last year I was like, enough about talking about it, actually do something about it. Like I have like chapters written and stories written out, but I didn't actually have like a structure or anything like that. So I'm like, okay, game plan. What do I need? I need an agent. I need a publisher. I got to start asking a lot of people, what do I need to do to write a book? Like it's not a, it's a process, right? What's your why? Why are you doing this? Who's your audience? Like a lot of hard questions you got to answer. It's not just like, oh, everybody wants to write a book. Like you got to you got to have like meat on the bones. So anyways, last year I set a goal that I was going to get an agent. I was going to get an editor. I was going to get a book proposal done. Anyway, so I got my dream team, Nina and Michelle, my dream team. Um, and actually we uh, we finished the book proposal and... Um, Stay tuned. Next year, there'll be a book coming out. 
Mabruk. That is awesome. I think that's a great place to to wrap up. I feel really, really inspired. Um, and it's truly such an honor to speak with you. And I cannot wait for your book. There's so many things that I personally took away from this conversation. And so I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. This episode was produced by Ban Barqawi, edited by Hiba Sharif, and hosted by me, Dana Balut. Fact-checking was by Dina Sabri and sound design and mixing by Munzir Al-Hashim. Batul Khalifa is our operations manager and Al Empire is a production of the amazing Kerning Cultures Network. Thanks again to the incredible Maha Abul Aynain for taking the time to chat with us. Check out her podcast, Savvy Talk, and follow her on Instagram at Maha Gabber, M-A-H-A-G-A-B-E-R. Thanks also to Solo Studios in Beirut for editing the video of the interview. To watch the full uncut version of this episode, search for Al Empire on YouTube, where you can catch other episodes that you might have missed this season. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review if you liked what you heard or if you didn't. Your feedback is so valuable to us and we love hearing from you. The good, the bad and the ugly. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Stay safe. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.